90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm doing pretty great this lovely April week. How about you, John? Oh, I'm doing good. It's finally above freezing, and we actually had an <laughs> above 70 day here, so I'm, I'm happy. Nice. Um, yes, we're expecting a thunderstorm any second, so that also makes me happy as well. Um, <laughs> I've been getting ready to go to Nevada for some field work, and so it's going to be super hot out there. That should be lovely. Well, what are you doing in Nevada? Uh, well, it's actually my grad student's first time putting together his own sampling trip. So we're going out there to sample some of those infamous zebra dolomites that I know you've heard all about. And uh, we're looking for some unconformity surfaces. And we're going to work our way from Vegas all the way up to Salt Lake City. So it should be really fun. So if you found some poor unsuspecting undergrad, uh, like I was years ago, to carry the, the gallons and mm -hmm. gallons of water for uh, the rock drill? Yep, my undergrad is coming. He's going to be my grad student next year, but maybe not <laughs> after... Uh, <laughs> After I make him carry six gallons of water through the desert. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, it's a rite of passage, man. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so what have you been up to? Oh, not too much. Working in the lab like normal. Yep. I see that you're still pasty white, so yep. <laughs> yep. Not the nice sunlight outside in a lab with no windows to enjoy it in. Yep. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> well, we're really excited this week because we've got a special guest. Which we haven't had in several episodes. Yeah, yeah. I always like having way smarter people than me to talk to, so. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so it's my pleasure to introduce Katie Huff. Hi, Katie. Hi. Um, thanks for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming on. And would you like to tell everybody really quickly a little bit about who you are, and then we'll get to why we're really excited to have you here. <laughs> uh, yeah, sure. So um, I'm a nuclear engineer. I'm a postdoc at Berkeley um, in the fall, I'll actually be a professor at the University of Illinois in Urbana, which is pretty exciting. But um, I'm pretty involved in the scientific Python community and in software carpentry and uh, in something called the Hacker Within. And all of these things are related to scientific computing and reproducible uh, science when you use computers. So um, a lot of that complements my nuclear engineering research. I understood the word science and computers. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I met you at uh, the Scientific Python conference that Shannon makes shameless fun of me for. <laughs> shameless. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, several years ago and was really impressed because there are so few academics that have a passion for reproducible computing. And I think it's really just now coming into the focus of this incoming generation of professors, right? Absolutely. You know, I think um, there's actually a really interesting vein of, you know, if you if you go on Google Scholar right now, you'll find that there are, if you search reproducible research in, there's now like in the last couple of years, a couple of papers on reproducible research in neuroscience, reproducible research in, you know, probably not geophysics yet. There's not one in nuclear engineering either. But um, <laughs> various various papers where people are first, you know, for the first time really exploring what it looks like to do reproducible research in their domain. And I think it's coming about because of a lot of paper retractions, because of bugs, um, because of a lot of very high profile cases where um, things had to be, you know, retracted or fixed. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know how many times in geophysics, we've heard 
that there's this uh, this theory or paper that everyone's accepted, and then some grad student wants to recode the the program in a different language, does it, and finds out that all of the results from the other paper were completely null and void. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something that people are seeing a lot more as more people are using computing in an academic setting, because scientists aren't trained to be computational, and so often there are bugs that we don't realize are, are there. So reproducible computing is really about making sure those things don't progress all the way through to the paper stage. Well, I think as scientists, a lot of times we come getting dragged, kicking and screaming into computing because we want to do geology, not computing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, this this reproducible thing is a really big deal. I mean, just from a public standpoint, too, because, you know, it's really hard to get people to understand computational geophysics, but it's easy when all they hear is, oh, this really famous guy was trying to lie to everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. So that is another aspect of the reproducibility, which I'm excited about. Yeah. And I think that there are things that are, that really affect public perception in climate science, for example. Yeah. And yeah, in exactly. my universe in nuclear engineering, there's no, there's no room for mess ups. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the public is watching very closely at all times. <laughs> That that was a big joke because uh, John and I both got our undergrads in meteorology and they said that we got paid so crappily in meteorology because, you know, nothing was riding on us if we were wrong. So even though we took all the engineering classes, like. <laughs> <laughs> That's you great. Know. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then we became dirt people. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> did geology and geophysics. <laughs> so why why python I, I i love python and i know you do too obviously but why is that a good place for people to get started mm -hmm. i ask this all the time to john i want you to know katie <laughs> <laughs> so it's a really readable syntax it looks like english that's the number one quality that i think is important for beginners you don't have to remember where the semicolon goes because there are no semicolons um, I think white space delimited text is really easy to read and understand because it has structure. And so a lot of these things are really just about what I think beginners um, do well, which is read English. Uh, and that's not necessarily always true, but um, it is definitely true that, uh, that younger undergrads are having a lot more experience with these kinds of pseudocode languages when they're growing up. So, you know, things like um, logo or whatever, I guess, scratch. Um, these were, these are all kind of, I'm getting old. So I, I, I never had this experience, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> the, you know, these experiences with these pseudo code, like programming languages, give them a lot more of a start at a readable programming language, but something like C++ with a lot of curly braces and semicolons and where the header files are in one place and the, you know, object files are this thing that you have to build. And it's, uh, it's a lot simpler to have a pre-compiled sort of language like Python that's really a readable script. And I think that makes a big difference. Um, there's also an open source factor. So because the vast majority of Python code um, is born open source and a ton of it is out there online in examples and snippets, uh, people can use a sort of templating learning process, right? Um, if you can, if you can Google it, you can usually get to an example that does close to what you want on Stack Overflow, which is a real learning tool. You know, it's, it's not just copying and pasting. You have to figure out what it is you're looking for. And I think students 
today have that kind of thinking where of course if they don't know what they're doing they're going to google it and if they're working in fortran it's going to be hard for them to find a solution <laughs> yeah and you know, you mentioned stack overflow that's one of those things that anytime it's down i don't know how many millions to billions of dollars are lost for every hour stack overflow is not online yeah. it's a fantastic resource yeah can you imagine programming without the internet i actually know um, a prestigious and important professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who's brand spanking new. She's in her third year. She, um, she worked at a nuclear Navy lab that did not have the internet for a while for security reasons. And was, she's a computational wow. nuclear engineer. Can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. She would write wow. down all the things she needed to Google later. Uh, this is Rachel Slaybot, one of one of my favorite collaborators. Uh, I mean, I can't imagine because I think I took Fortran '95, you know, back in before there was a lot of googling happening. So that's right. A little bit. I can imagine a little bit. A lot of what we do in geophysics is still Fortran too. So even though a lot of us don't write it, we inherit legacy code that we have to yeah. end up playing with. Huh. It's it's interesting sometimes. <laughs> Actually, that is sort of a downfall, I guess, is that students coming in have these sort of real text languages. And so going back and looking at the legacy stuff, I never thought about that. That could be hard. Yeah, that's a real issue. And in nuclear, we have that too, where a lot of legacy code is, is in Fortran. And this is something that actually my own PhD advisor, Paul Wilson, ha that was his critique actually of this book was that, you know, this isn't quite enough for research scientists in nuclear engineering because mm. they need to learn how to compile a piece of software from the source code, even in a legacy language. Yeah. So is that the current, the current, like, I used to carry those cards, the punch cards, like, that's what we say now. <laughs> You'll never believe where I had to put my semicolons. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a relative whose job it was, was to organize punch cards on the rolling library carts for programs at an aerospace company. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> different, different days for sure. But that, I think, is a really good point, though, of... Every time I talk to somebody, be it a geoscientist or just general scientist uh, that's new as a grad student, there's always this huge terror of learning computing. And it's hard because it's one of those things where it's got recursive knowledge needs. You need to know about computers to understand how to learn about computers. Yeah. Uh, and so is that, I guess that takes us to why we really wanted to chat with you because you co-wrote this amazing book called Effective Computation in Physics, which is an O'Reilly title uh, that you did with Anthony Skopatz, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, it was a blast to write. Um, <laughs> and it mostly covers, you know, the first many chapters are about the Bash shell and introductory Python. And later chapters start to get into, you know, data structures, data storage, plotting, um, visualization, a little bit of analysis, um, and some of the SciPy stack. And um, we really thought that we should write a book that we can just hand to our future graduate students and say, you know, if it's <laughs> if it's not in the index, then I'll be in my office. <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified to get that book. So I was like, oh, man, this looks super scary. And then like <laughs> the forward and everything was just great. And I was like, nope, this is for me. And I'm like, oh, Bashel, I know that this is great. OK, so that was wonderful. <laughs> Yeah, it was super readable. I mean, despite its intimidating looking typography <laughs> on the front. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we used a lot of hard looking words. Um, and actually, yeah. you know, constraining it to physics was a bit of a misnomer, really, in the title. It's, I think, really applicable to most of the um, sort of harder sciences. I think if you 
are an ecologist or something and you deal with a lot of textual data, maybe it's not quite as helpful because data storage is mostly about floats, you know. Um, but I think, you know, it definitely applies to everyone across different kinds of domains. I mean, obviously, geophysics is part of physics, but, you know, I would say that it also applies to people <laughs> in biology and whatnot. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, and I mean, this book, it's, let's see, I'm trying to see how many pages here. So we're looking at just slightly over 500 pages. It is very thorough. <laughs> Not <And> enough. <laughs> Before we were finished writing, we already had chapters we felt like we needed to add, and we didn't. <laughs> oh, man. That's painful. Volume two, apparently, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, so there's a class at Penn State called Anything But Excel that I a couple it. professors uh, co-teach. <laughs> and this is one of the, the highly recommended books because uh, I think it came out – was it right before last sci-fi? Yeah. And yeah, I got it there and went through it and came back and said, you, you have to look at this book. It's amazing. <laughs> and a lot of people have really, really enjoyed it. So what, what was it like trying to plan this? Because it's obviously a huge amount of information yeah. and no really great way to introduce it in any kind of order. You know, it was hard. I mean, first of all, I'm just, it brings me such great joy that there's an anything but Excel class. But also, yeah, it's, <laughs> I, um, you know, we really owe the O'Reilly author, the O'Reilly editors a lot for the like structure and the thought behind it. But, you know, I should be clear that um, in 2014, I met Tim O'Reilly. And then a couple weeks later, one of his like, um, ideas men, a guy, Mike Lukidis, um, chatted with me on Skype about what I thought, what books I thought should exist in the world. And I described basically this book and a couple other books, one of which now exists, the Scython book that Kurt Smith wrote. And then, um, and then I thought about who should write it, but Greg Wilson was busy and Titus Brown was busy. And so I kind of stopped thinking about it. And then they asked me to review a proposal by my closest collaborator in nuclear engineering, Anthony Skopatz. And so I started reading this proposal and I was like, of course you would write the book. And I get to the end and he has recommended that I be his co-author. And so I was like, did you guys read all the way through this proposal before I was assigned to review it? Um, That's like so, a setup, like marriage invitation or something. You know what I mean? Totally. It was, yeah, serendipitous. That's wonderful. Yeah, and so, of course, you know, we sat down and thought about what should be in it, and I had a lot of comments, you know, I added pieces of chapters that I thought needed to exist. I said, oh, well, you know, just to the proposal stage, I said, oh, well, the, you know, there should be more on regular expressions, which is, like, my favorite thing in the world. Um, <laughs> it's not everyone has the same appreciation, um, things like this. And so Anthony and I just split the 20 chapters down the middle and, you know, wrote half and half over the course of the next year uh it was a blast and uh yeah (laughs) did you have to try it out like did you get like students in your lab and stuff and said here work this and see if it what are your comments and stuff yeah and you know what i had had a lot of experience with software carpentry which is another thing that maybe we i don't know if you guys have talked about this at all in the podcast but there's a large international nonprofit called Software Carpentry that teaches two-day courses in the Bash Shell, Intro Python, Git and GitHub, and SQL, or some other topic like SciPy, right? Um, and a lot, of, um, a lot of my experience with putting together this kind of tutorial material came from 
my experience working with software carpentry and teaching boot camps like this. And, um, and so I, I did have a notion of what kinds of examples worked and so did Anthony. Um, uh, but yeah, we actually had an electronic version go out early and a number of people sort of voluntarily downloaded the electronic version and submitted responses to us and checked things. We also had the O'Reilly process involves three or four technical reviewers who are supposed to go through and do this. So we had a few technical reviewers who reviewed every page uh, and made sure everything worked. But yeah. Wow. So when you're writing, you know, 10 chapters of a book, how did, did, did you do one of those, I'm going to write so many words a day type thing, or I'm going to write a chapter every yeah. two weeks? Or how do you tackle it? Because that's mm-hmm. you know, eating an elephant, sort of. It is eating an elephant. <laughs> and Anthony ate his elephant, like, in a giant gulp or two. And I <laughs> ate mine definitely one tiny bite at a time, with the occasional couple-week break where I, like, was busy doing stuff. Um, because I, I, I read this book called How to Write a Lot. I forget who wrote it, but it's a psychologist who um, is interested in how people write and he said you should write every day writing in bulk doesn't usually work for people so I tried to write two hours every day you always hear that too like all the boot camps you know like writing your dissertation (laughs) writing your first papers it's always like write a little bit every day I still find that hard I I sort of like the sessional writing but I'm trying to get over that which is very difficult i think like i mean how bad was that that's like going to the gym right you gotta drag your butt to the computer (laughs) well you might like like this actually like a a good motivator for me is to buy myself a really nice cup of coffee and so i would do it physically in a nice coffee shop and i would only write there so i would go there i was only allowing myself to write there and i would earn this nice cup of coffee Amazing. I don't know if I could sit there like, oh man, that's a good idea. Yeah. That's some serious motivation yeah. dangling right in front of you. <laughs> it actually helps to have an editor. So the people at O'Reilly, we had Megan Blanchett was our editor. And she just every few days would be like, so how's everything going? <laughs> <laughs> that's what a writing group is for, I hear, but <laughs> that's awesome. Just when you thought you were done dealing with an advisor, right? Exactly. An editor, right? <laughs> That's correct. Um, There was a tool I saw online the other day, and I I played with it. I don't know if I would have the guts to use it, but they were encouraging you to just stream of consciousness write to come up with a draft and edit later. Mm -hmm. And if you stopped typing for more than 20 seconds, it deleted everything. That's fantastic. Uh, (laughs) Oh, my God. You should. I wish the radio could see the looks on our faces. I'm, like, full of shock. (laughs) We'll put a link in show notes if I can find it again. It was really cool, though. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. Oh, my gosh. That terrifies me. Like, I have heart palpitations just thinking about that. <laughs> oh, my Lord. <clears throat> so, uh, so John has a really interesting question here in the show notes, which I think is more important than anything we've talked about. Uh, do they let you choose the animal on your cover? <laughs> they don't. Um, so apparently if you have a really strong opinion about what your animal should be and it hasn't been taken, you can write a long winded piece about why you think that animal is fitting. (laughs) But first of all, Anthony and I couldn't figure out what animal we both wanted. And 
neither of us was willing to write said piece about why that animal. Um, and so the typical, typical, and even if you write this thing, the artists who are, you know, um, independent thinkers of their own and feel very strongly about their craft, uh, they just choose the animal for you. So apparently there's some story about someone who's afraid of a spider, afraid of spiders, but has a spider on his book. I don't know. This may be urban legend. <laughs> That's hilarious. Like O'Reilly urban legend. And so you guys wound up with this big squid, right? Yeah. And in fact, I think it's a really cool awesome. squid. Yeah. But, and the picture on the book is so much bigger than the actual squid. So the squid oh, itself really? is fascinatingly like super tiny. He's like a couple Aww. centimeters long. How cute Aww. is that? That's pretty adorable. <laughs> yep, that, that's what I wanted to, to get asked in this interview. Exactly. That's amazing. Because <laughs> I was like looking in the book. I'm like, how is this squid applicable? Like I'm trying to figure it out. Like, and we don't know. <laughs> Apparently the artists read the description of, of the book text or at least the proposal and decide what animal so it's based on something in the book. I don't know what. That's amazing. That is amazing. That's going to inspire me to write a book for O'Reilly just to see what my, you know, Patronus is. That's right. Exactly. That's awesome. That's in, that, that sounds very much like when uh, Rand did the, the logo for Next uh, and, you know, Jobs hired him and uh, they said, no, I'm going to do one there are no versions i make a logo you can use it or you cannot it's a hundred thousand dollars either way (laughs) this is the one thing and you will like it because i'm the artist so oh man that's great that's great wow so i'm really curious because i i'm a i like hearing about people's tools and workflows person how did you write this did you use some kind of a collaborative writing tool did you just use Word, surely not. Um, did you use tech? I mean, what did, what did you end up writing in? I would have deeply loved to use tech. Um, the O'Reilly platform at the time was using a piece of software called Atlas, to, but it's, it relies on markdown languages, one of which is ASCII doc. Um, I'd never heard of it. You've probably never heard of it. It's a plain text markup language for this kind of thing. It's not completely dissimilar to markdown, but I just would enter VI and write in this ASCII doc markup language. Now, um, you can do pure LaTeX within ASCII doc with just some markup, right? Much like markdown. Um, And so we did that. But now apparently O'Reilly is moving forward. And in fact, many book publishers like O'Reilly are incorporating the possibility of like writing your book in a Jupyter notebook. Um, Yeah, and so it might very soon come to pass that this is the standard behavior, which would be Uh, be fun. You're going to have to explain what a Jupyter notebook is. (laughs) So a Jupyter notebook is what we used to call an IPython notebook. So it's very similar, but now you can use Julia or Python or R or like 200 other language kernels in the notebook-like interface with which you interact with that language. So you can have interleaved gotcha. text and equations and actual running code and different code cells, et cetera, et cetera. So now, oh, that's awesome. yeah, it, it's called Jupiter with a Y, J-U-P-Y-T-E-R. <laughs> what is wrong with you people? <laughs> that's awesome. Um, I will say I went to look this up and the first I typed in J-U, but I have 
a mechanical keyboard, which everyone should be proud of me. So I'm trying to do it very softly, and Justin Bieber was the first thing that came up Ooh. <laughs> on my Google search. I don't know why. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> anyway, okay. Well, so yeah, I was really curious because there are so many times uh, I have a book on signal processing that I really like, but you can tell it was written in Word because of the way the equations are typeset. And all the O'Reilly books have beautifully typeset equations. Yeah. So I knew it had to be some kind of maybe tech derivative, which is what it sounds like they probably end up using in the end to do it. So that's, no, when you guys say tech, that's like law tech, right? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. All right. Or well, which side are you on the, the latex, law tech? What, that's... I, I call it latex. I think okay. I'm happy Sorry. hearing people call it whatever as long as they don't call it latex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I think I called it latex for a while. Hmm. And then I heard John say it enough that I wised up. I know uh, Ross Lockwood, who did a lot of fun stuff like living in the Mars habitat for NASA and all this while he was finishing his PhD, uh, found this program, can't remember the name of it off the top of my head, that let him and his advisor do more WYSIWYG type latte editing yeah there are a couple of them one's called overleaf one's called share latex uh i encountered one recently that was awful but i forget what it's called yeah, hmm. yeah it seems like because that that is kind of a challenge but that's that's a whole nother yeah. <laughs> that's a whole nother tangent we could go down for quite a while mm-hmm. um so i'm actually talking to several students now that are early in grad school and we have some more new people moving into the lab that i'm in as i'm getting ready to move out hopefully in the near future uh and it's hard to know how should somebody that is completely unfamiliar that's walking into a lab with no prior background and doing anything other than email and word processing how do they get started with scientific computing man that is a great question um and you know i I actually was thinking about this and um and I also was looking at your recent shows, and I ended up listening to your show about doing things with your hands uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And it actually, I think this is a really good analogy. So I think you have to have a project, small, large, it doesn't matter. But because there are so many ins and outs, so many little things you're going to have to learn in order to do this other little thing, you know, just spinning up a Jupyter notebook, you typically are going to have to know how to install Python, how to uh, open up your terminal and you know a whole bunch check your environment probably maybe and then you know type jupyter notebook and hit enter into the terminal and so like this takes a lot of skills and you think oh well we're just getting started we haven't even written any code you know and so i think because it takes so many skills to actually get something done you have to have a something to do you can't just follow little toy examples online you have to have some cohesive even very small cohesive project you know something say very simple like you know show me a very typical analysis from equation to plot in a script and put it on github and share it with me you know um something very straightforward you know and i think basically you could suggest that a beginner just make an agreement with themselves that they're no longer going to plot things in excel and the next time they run into a situation where they need to plot something, then then they have to go write a Python script or they, you know, they have to go figure out how to plot things using actual programming languages. And in order to do that one, you know, self-contained little thing, they're going to have to learn a lot of stuff. First, first and foremost, how to Google it. Um, right. Which, you know, because as soon as you've made that decision that you're going to start programming and setting up a program, 
like writing any kind of script, the syntax will not come immediately. So they need to look for an example, how to plot in Python, and they'll get the matplotlib gallery and right. start from there, right? Yeah, and I think that that's an excellent place to start because just looking through there, I get ideas on how I'm going to plot my existing data. And I mean, we've all been using matplotlib for a long time. And there's so much cool stuff that's hidden in there. Mm -hmm. You always can learn something new. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And they're adding stuff all the time. Uh, yeah, but I think learning by example, having some little piece that they can bite off and something that they actually feel motivated to do that's tied to their actual research is key. Because to learn something, you really have to play with it sort of in the way that you guys were talking about on your last show. <laughs> it's, it's an important point because like, I feel like students coming in are said, it seems like the university is always saying, these kids are digital natives. They're digital natives. They don't know how to do anything but Facebook. <laughs> like, I sound really old saying that, but it's true. Like they can, they can Facebook and they can tweet and they can go to Wikipedia, but getting any deeper into a computer is not a skill set that they have. And so I think we're sort of overestimating their abilities and this like idea about here, this is your research. Here's this tiny thing. I do paleomagnetism. So we call it paleo magic. It's a big joke. <laughs> but I think a lot of the magic is like, we don't even know how our stuff gets plotted. We use this ancient program that does it and no one ever tries. <laughs> I've made John work on this program. That's why he's laughing hysterically. Um, <laughs> and no one ever gets any deeper. You know, they just take that and they move on and accept it. And it's that whole reproducibility and really truly understanding your data. And all we have to do, it's a simple orthogonal plot. That's it. So that's a great thing to get people to tackle, which I mean is what John spewed at me a couple of weeks ago when I said, how do I get started? <laughs> but I mean, he's, he's absolutely right because students can, yeah, they can Google stuff, but going any deeper, it just doesn't seem like it happens. And a lot of geology, the problem is why should they, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think you've given one example of why should they, you know, you should, you, you right. should know how your own tools work. And actually that's exactly. a great place to start. I completely agree with John. You know, people, if you're using an open source tool, go look on the issue list and find something that looks like low hanging fruit and try to fix it and <laughs> yep. go to the school of open source. You know, actually, like I think Jake Vanderplas told me that one time that uh, I was, I was saying I'd never taken a programming class and I just kind of learned this stuff on the fly like an old school apprentice and he said oh i went to the school of open source like he started contributing <laughs> to things like astropy and like slowly learned in that way yeah, yeah i mean several sci-pi's ago you know I've, I've used python for my research for quite a while now since early on in my undergrad but uh i was trying to do something it was actually at uh, the sci-pi convention working on this cool animation of some data and i couldn't get this this thing to work uh that was doing some integration of some seismic data. And I asked Ryan, one of my friends that was there about it. And he said, oh, I think, I think that's a bug. I said, oh man, he goes, well, you, you should fix it. And so that's <laughs> the first time I contributed to something that was, you know, an actual bigger open source project. And it was awesome. And now, like you said, it's fun to go, go through the issues list and see how many you can knock out. It's a challenge. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. If you don't have anything that you know that you want to do too, right? I didn't even know that would be a thing that you could do. Just go in there and see what the problem is and then start poking it. That's awesome. And I actually would strongly, you know, I've strongly encouraged open source projects. And I know this is starting to become a community norm to label issues as like low hanging fruit or easy or like beginner. Oh, yeah. um, because I think that really makes it possible for this community to survive. <laughs> 
(laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, the people who know things, like the bus factor gets very small over time if you don't have new blood. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we've talked a lot about Git and GitHub just kind of skimming over it. And I think we've briefly, or I've probably briefly preached about it on here about it's, you should be using version control for everything. Um, but maybe we should define that a little bit and say why as scientists we need it. Yeah. So um, you should never have a folder on your laptop that says final, final, <laughs> underscore, final, final, <laughs> underscore, final, 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 <laughs> because you will slowly shoot yourself in the foot. Eventually you will get that analysis looking perfect. It will have the plot plotting just like you want and you'll submit the paper. And six months later, your reviewers will finally get back to you and they'll say, (laughs) wouldn't it be great if you plotted this normalized by the such and such constant, right? And you're like, oh God. I have to add the such and such constant to the analysis and renormalize the entire plot for this one reviewer three, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, which folder was it that held the plots, that held the scripts that made the plots, that holds the data in the version that you wrote the paper <laughs> yep. under? That universe is one that I don't want to live in where you have to find which folder and even labeling it isn't enough because then you're going to have to like, you know, scatter these files all over your computer. You now have a storage issue. Also, if you drop your laptop or lose it, or it gets stolen in a bar in San Francisco, like your Katie Huff, um, (laughs) you better have a backup somewhere on the cloud. Right. And so that's where GitHub comes in. So Git solves the first problem where you can tag a certain version of your code in place as the one that holds the script that you publish the manuscript under. Like the, the sub, you, I have a submitted tag on a lot of my code, like submitted. This is the submitted tag because so I submitted a paper. In, that so happens can, in the name then? You can tag the version when you make the commit. So Git oh. compiles a set of commits, um, atomic changes to your code, and each of them is given a hash. But you can also add English readable tags to those versions. The hashes are completely unique and distinct, but you can also add a tag that says something English to you, like version 1.0 or, you know, submitted to That's just like saying final, come on now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, except that you can basically ignore them until, um, you know, you can ignore the versions until you get to that point and you have a comment on each of those uh, commit hashes. So it's so in addition to the tags, so tags are like a very special visible type of comment, but um, every every commit is also going to have a comment. So you can search through the logs. So uh, your undo bit button is only as big as your commit. Yeah. Uh, and so I don't know. This is and, very helpful. Go ahead. Well, and my and my favorite thing about Git is being able to, especially if I have a model. Uh, I was actually working on some thermal thermal models today and thermal models of fault zones and. So I had this thing, it was working, and I said, gee, it'd be cool if I could also add X, Y, Z. And I didn't copy and make another one and say, you know, underscore works, and then work on this one. No, you you make a branch. That's right. And you start doing something, and if it doesn't work, throw it away, you're back to where you were. If it works, merge it, and all the fun is now in your main branch. 
That's right. Now, branching is probably a really complicated thing to explain on the radio, but I think you've done it really well. You can give yourself a little temporary sandbox to play with things, to test out a bug, to add new features, and then only when they're working, merge them in. I live in the Word universe, though, and it doesn't sound like this is possible. <laughs> and more importantly, my, you know, well, at the time, advisor lived in the world Word universe, so what are you going to do about that, you know? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's really hard. So the X, I think, in Word files that are now docx actually stands for that, like, cluster of XML folders that is actually holding the data that is your Word file. <laughs> it's not actually like a file with text in it. It's a fleet of interconnected XML metadata. Um, Who knew? Yeah, it's really not very pretty and definitely not versionable. Um, yeah. yeah. And so I actually, so we've recently done at bids, um, so I, part of my postdoc funding comes from this Berkeley Institute for Data Science, at which a great deal of reproducible um, re reproducibility discussion is happening in working groups. Um, and one of the things that we've been doing is collecting case studies from real scientists to ask, okay, what does your workflow look like? What does your workflow look like? How reproducible is it? Is it like which parts of the pain points, what tools suck for you? What makes it hard to collaborate? And one of them is word track changes which works if there are only two people and does not work if anyone needs to collaborate, if more than two people need to work on something simultaneously. And Git allows you to do that with code. LaTeX allows that to happen on, in Git for a like written document. Any kind of markup language allows you to do that with Git in any kind of document. So plain text formats are timeless. And yes. <laughs> so this is something like everyone should be doing, even if you're not a hardcore coder or anything like that. My poor husband is a pure mathematician, and um, I forced him to get started using <laughs> Git for collaborations so that he could stop waiting to get the email with the updates from his collaborators in, you know, Israel or Lisbon or whatever, because they'll often work like two people on a paper, and they all, both have different ideas, but... They should be working collaboratively. So how hard is it to drag all those people along with you, though? I mean, has he been successful in that? or? So mathematicians write in LaTeX already, so it was just a Git oh. question, right? So Okay. But I do, think that, I do think that you have a point. Getting people uncomfortable with something like a markup language. LaTeX looks really similar to code, uh, and I think it has all the same trappings of fear. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Though I, I think you could, and this is a strategy I'm thinking about trying out with uh, the next paper that we write, is just sending it around in Markdown and saying, everybody, we're, we're using Markdown. Mm -hmm. Stop changing header formats and header fonts and wasting everyone's time. Yeah. Uh, but the biggest, the biggest complaint and grumble that I get when I propose that was, well, how are we going to see what other people have changed? Mm -hmm because then you get into diffing files and people get scared again. Yeah. So do you have any ideas on, on how to do that? So I like pull requests for that reason. So GitHub, because it has this pull request system, if you're using a universe, if you're in a universe where it's just markdown files and you email them around, then you do have to diff. But if you have markdown files in a GitHub repository, then the diffs can be sectioned into, you know, my most recent two weeks of changes that are somewhat atomic. And you can, instead of pushing them directly to the main branch, those pull requests, 
sort of present the full set of changes to your colleagues. And so that's what I've been doing in my most recent papers with colleagues where like changes at the very beginning in the full draft stage, like in the draft, rough draft stage, you just push them all you want until we have something. And then once you reach a stage where it's just edits and minor, you know, changes that people might care about, right. then you start making pull requests instead so that everyone can review the diff in somewhat atomic ways. You still have to review diffs though. Yeah, and I, getting the GitHub workflow to people that have never experienced it, it, it's it's complicated and it's hard to get somebody to dedicate the time to do it when yeah. when Word works for them. But it's a challenge that we've got to get over. That's absolutely true. And I think, yeah, forcing forcing collaborators into using Git is hard. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's going to be like a, that's just, Git is not an intuitive uh, user interface. It has weird, uh, weird uh, keywords and parameters and, you know, checkout means two different things. And yeah. it doesn't mean what SVN used to call it. And there's <laughs> just a lot of problems with the way that uh, vocabulary was chosen for Git. Yeah. Well, so I think as we're bringing a new crop of undergrads through in the next few years, this is a great place to change how people are interacting with computers by making them more educated on these issues as part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. So it had, uh, it, I know that's something that you're going to try to do with your students, uh, <laughs> and I'm guessing that's a large part of what the book's for as well, right? That's absolutely true. And I think it has to, it has to start in their classes. So you have to teach them um, that pushing something to Git isn't impossible. You know, pushing things up to GitHub isn't hard. Um, you just have to figure out what a couple of commands mean. Um, I think you could do that by, you know, early on in early freshman classes, not requiring it. Some people are just not going to learn it early, like early in their careers if they don't feel they need it. So make it a bonus point, submit your homework through a GitHub pull request, and I'll give you an extra bonus point. Some people will work hard to do that. Some people won't. Um, but yeah, I think scaring them early is also really important about reproducibility. Um, <laughs> so one of my favorite talks on why reproducibility, why bother with all these tools, is uh, Philip Stark at Berkeley is a statistics professor. He's a really fascinating person, and he gives this talk about reproducibility uh, in the context of the seven de- deadly sins. And so six of the seven, you can ignore <laughs> lust, but all the rest of them somehow apply <laughs> Uh, and you can use your imagination about how, but you know, the easy ones are like, you know, we're driven by envy to keep our code not open. We're driven by, you know, um, well, there's a lot of, there's a lot of these, uh, but basically like greed, right? You want to keep, keep your ideas to yourself, but so that no one else gets them so that you can, um, yeah. Anyway, it's a really, really funny talk. Uh, it's probably somewhere online, but. Um, yeah, if we find that, we'll link that in. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I mean, it is, and it's also a little bit scary, especially when you're submitting a paper to say, okay, here's all my data, here's all my code, mm-hmm. find something wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's that's ultimately the goal, right, is to make sure that what you're doing is correct, but that can be uh, pretty scary. Yeah, I think you just have to teach them super early on that this is the scientific method, and, you know, we... Instead of saying, trust me, you should say, you know, show me. And instead of, um, 
you know, instead of saying like, if you say, so I think, um, if you say, you know, just trust me on this and then you're wrong, then it's because you're lying. You know, people will perceive that as like a lie or a, a falsehood. Whereas if you say, you know, here's, here's everything that I did. I'm trying really hard. Um, I think I've got this answer. I'll show you everything. Um, help me figure out if it's right. No one would ever call you a liar after that. Like no one, no one would believe that you intentionally misled them. And science is all about that transparency. And so making sure that they see it as part of the scientific method for rooting out that ubiquity of error um, that is human, I think is, is much better. Mm -hmm. And they'll, they'll see that they, they'll never be blameless if there's some major flaw in their analysis, but you certainly get much closer to being impervious to those kinds of big reveals of a big bug because if you hid your code from people and there's a big reveal of a big bug, then you were hiding it on purpose maybe. But if you shared it with everyone and you yourself are, you know, just as flabbergasted that it existed, then there's more than just plausible deniability. You made your best effort to be transparent and allow people to dissect it. I think you just have to instill that very complicated idea about science into students early on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's it's so important and it's really quite easy because then it's not, you know, you have students that are trying to show off and, you know, they do these analyses and they're not correct, mm -hmm. but it seems like, you know, they're just going forward with it and there's no idea about what they did. And it makes it more of a community thing, which is what science should be. And so it's like, I'm so excited about all this open source stuff and this reproducibility, not to like prove people wrong. That's not what it's for, you know? It's to help out together, just like you just said. And if you can start early on with that idea, as opposed to, you know, these are my ideas, you can't have them, you know, mm -hmm. you shouldn't even be able to look at my code, which I think plagued a lot of meteorology when I was an undergrad. Um, oh, yeah. It was not a very friendly atmosphere, and it was because of that. Mm -hmm. And I mean, which is why I became a geologist. So that's good. But still, <laughs> um, it was that whole idea. So I think this is a really important idea to start off with very early on to start building this, you know, inclusive scientific community. Mm -hmm. Well, and to stop reinventing the wheel. Yes. Why is everybody coding the Crank Nicholson scheme? <laughs> still? Yeah, man, that's crazy. Computer scientists have optimized that. Just let's let's you know use it and solve an interesting problem. You need to understand how it works, but there's no reason to reinvent the same wheel every time. No, that's absolutely true. And you know, showing people that in the same way that you want your papers cited, you want your code to be used. Um, that's that should be a scientific product of its of its own. Yeah, and well, I will say I've not been more deeply soul crushed than. Uh, when recently I read in a nature, I believe it was a nature paper, uh, at the end it said the, the software for this analysis is not available due to the specificity of its application, which reads as, I didn't comment this, it's a mess of spaghetti MATLAB code, and I don't want to share it because it's embarrassing. Yep. You called it <laughs> the specificity, and I'm never going to use it again. Right? Yeah. It's so specific. I just hacked this together for this one paper. You're never seeing this analysis again, so I'm tossing it as soon as this gets accepted. Exactly. What a mess. That's not science. Who have who has it advanced? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it just yeah. 
because you never know when you're going to want to go back to that. And you never know when somebody's going to say, prove it. Yeah. Yeah. And like, if you're really trying to advance science, you should contribute that code so that no one ever writes it again. Just as you're saying. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, and the reason that made me angry is because I went looking for it because I, I wanted to look at this analysis and say, you know, I, I have an idea on how this could be tweaked a little bit differently, and I want to see if it stands up to this test. If it had been a Jupyter notebook, mm-hmm. I could have downloaded it, changed how it was shown, but that wasn't wasn't an option at all. And there's been a few people I've seen that are starting to use Jupyter notebooks as their laboratory notebook. Oh, wow. Yeah which I think is fantastic. It's still a pain point because it's hard to search through. And, mm-hmm. you know, when you have 600 Jupyter notebooks in a folder that's my lab notebook or something, that could be <laughs> bad. Yeah, they're also, like, sort of strange when you diff them. Um, yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's all JavaScript underneath or JSON and stuff. It's like there's a lot under there. <laughs> I know the people that make uh, the Papers app mm-hmm. have started to make a new app called Findings that mm. is supposed to be a lab notebook type thing. Uh, but it's still pretty shaky. And judging by the number of crashes I've got recently from papers, <laughs> I'm a little worried about using that as a lab notebook. <laughs> yeah. That sounds interesting, oh. though. Yeah. I hate to drag you guys back to Earth, literally, but um, <laughs> Katie, uh, I wanted to ask you about, so you're a nuclear engineer, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of geologists that actually work with like the NRC and things like this. So I wanted to ask you, are you interested in geology? And you know, if so, what about it? Because this actually kind of goes hand in hand more than probably most people think. It does go hand in hand. And actually I would say that about 60% of my dissertation work in, in my thesis um, was on a like um, a model of a homogeneous medium nuclear waste repository um that was a plug-in <laughs> for a larger simulation framework about recycling waste and stuff like this so it's actually about uh you know my dissertation is i actually am embarrassed i don't remember the title of my dissertation but it's like it's <laughs> extremely long it's like a you know um integrated nuclear waste repository model in a fuel cycle framework and that repository model i you know i had to take a bunch of you know, hydro, like hydrology courses and contaminant hydrology. Um, you know, I, I actually, um, and the Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board um, is a mixture of geologists and nuclear engineers. And one of those people was the geologist on my dissertation committee. So one of the people who's currently on the Nuclear Waste Technical Review Board is Gene Barr, who is a geology professor at the University of Wisconsin, who was on my dissertation committee and taught those hydrology courses that I took and incorporated into this model that I then showed that nuclear waste doesn't move around because it's a really diffusive, boring medium. Uh, Like, if you bury something 500 meters deep, things don't really move around in clay, and that's pretty much it. You could break through all the waste packages and drill an effective hole, and then maybe you get some movement, but in a really simple model, nothing really interesting happens for quite a long time. Uh, <laughs> I, I love that the the subtitle could have been like, "What rock should we stick this stuff in?" Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> I was wonderful. like, you, you said your title was long, but I didn't hear any colons in there, so <laughs> yeah. that, that's good. 
That's the colon. What rock should we stick this yeah. in? <laughs> yeah. I think the University of Wisconsin has like a 10-word maximum or something. Oh. Yeah. How can you possibly express yourself in 10 words? Oh, that's so painful. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, think there's, I, there's a great deal of, of geology and nuclear engineering. And so I actually, and in particular geophysics, you know, there are some really interesting questions right now around um, deep borehole disposal, for example, um, can we or can we not even drill that far? And if we do, what do we even know about the salinity down there? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, just Fukushima, right? I mean, there was also a lot of geology that ha- that went into that too, right? Well, yeah. should have gone into it, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, natural hazards definitely goes hand in hand uh, with that, and that's actually a cool thing, you know to take us all the way back around, we started talking about SciPy at the very beginning. SciPy is where you get computer scientists, scientists, oceanographers, geographers, geologists, everybody coming together. And uh, we all have a really good time for a week and learn a lot about how to solve neat problems. Yeah, it's hands down my favorite conference. Um, you know, Fernando Perez, who wrote IPython, he's in my office, and he likes to say that he feels like it's it's his home conference. It's the conference where he feels like he's going home. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel <laughs> that way too. Um, and yeah, it's it's just a blast. And the tutorials at the beginning are really good. And at the end, if you stay long enough, you can sprint on those open source projects. I just I strongly recommend everyone who listens to your uh, podcast to go. It's a blast. It's also I gotta crash in Austin this. in like August. <laughs> yes. degrees. Super great. I mean, it's not like humid and repulsive at all in Texas, like most yeah. of the time. Instant sunburn. <laughs> and so we'll have to link in because all, all the talks are filmed and put online. There's a lot of really great talks. There was a wonderful one last year about why the jet color map needs to die. Uh, that's yeah, we, classic. We talked about that one, yeah. Yeah, and then uh, there are the lightning talks, and I'm actually going to see if I can find yours from last year because it was a lot of fun <laughs> about how you uh, used your computer skills to make the most awesome wedding planning experience ever. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I automated it. Uh, <laughs> my that's husband was amazing. in charge of figuring out the catering, and I was in charge of like automating all the emails and you know forking the website and things like that <laughs> you know we we already had our uh, invitations and such sent out at that point or if they weren't sent out they were already done uh, but after that talk i was a little sad that they, <laughs> that they were because that seemed like such a better way to deal with it yeah, i used to say fun. i was so glad i got married before pinterest but now i'm glad i got married before i learned anything about programming <laughs> <laughs> that's i'm i'm competitive i would have been right that's in the right. middle of that <laughs> God, that's awesome. It's my most starred repository on GitHub. I think like five people from SciPy are like modeling their weddings after it. Yeah. That's fantastic. And I thought my friend who was a geophysicist that got married on Pi Day was bad. Like That's yeah. pretty nerdy though. Yeah. At one fifty nine PM, three fourteen. Nice. Yeah, it was pretty good. That's great. we did start our wedding at three fourteen, but it was in October. So we only got a little bit of the way to pie. Yeah, not as nerdy. Yeah. But you said you also had quadcopters or something? Yeah, we had the, the rings flew in on a drone, and I built a pneumatic cannon to shoot the garter. So <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> so, yeah, we actually put the uh, the plans. Oh, and we built a, a photo booth. Uh, 
my fiance said she wanted a photo booth at the wedding. So we actually have a photo booth that was on the cover of Nuts and Volts magazine a couple months ago. But it's entirely Python powered. It runs on a Raspberry Pi and Python runs the whole show. You could press a button, it turned a lamp on, it turned down, took photos, camera sounds, the whole nine yards. It was impressive. Oh, that's so amazing. Python really... Uh, it's bringing people it, together. Yeah, it, it applied to, to a wedding, which was the last thing I ever thought I would write a code for. Uh, so. Oh, amazing. So before we, we go on to everybody's favorite segment of the show, was there any uh, last thoughts that you wanted to leave on this topic? Um. Or just programming in general <laughs> no i think you guys have covered a, a lot of ground uh it sounds like sounds like you guys talk about this kind of stuff a lot too so it's good it's good to hear that well, john and, talks at me about this stuff yeah <laughs> well in classic form we're running you know a, a very short show here we're already at, uh, approaching the hour mark uh, yep, so, yep. Uh, you can cut it you can cut out parts of it but we do want to move to as i said everybody's favorite segment of the show Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> and <laughs> so you picked out a fun paper for us that you said there was a story behind why you were reading this in the first place. And I'm really <laughs> curious because it's titled Hypnotic Suggestion Opportunities for Cognitive Neuroscience by Oakley and Halligan. That's right. That's right. It's a nature paper. Um, and I found myself reading it a few days ago. Um, because I'm extremely interested in whether there are some people who are more suggested, um, who are more susceptible to suggestion. Um, and I was interested in this not to employ this knowledge towards suggesting them. That, <laughs> wink, like, wink. Or manipulating them at all. I actually, um, you know, I have some friends who've gotten into like sort of a, um, like a productivity cult. We won't go into it, but I'm interested in whether or not it's real or if they're just very suggestible. And some of the techniques in, in these uh, workshops, I was like, well, maybe that's, are they group hypnotizing these people? So I like, I read into what it, what it means to be a little more suggestible. Um, and in fact, this paper talks quite a bit about how, um, how different people are more susceptible to both induction, the like entrance to a trance-like state, and suggestion, what you might do with it, like tell people to raise their arm and they do it without really thinking about it. Um, and this is tightly correlated, unsurprisingly, to um, just being suggestible in your day-to-day -day life. So being suggestible mm -hmm. to hip, like within the context of hypnosis is tightly correlated to this. And so um, actually such oh, sort no. of large group awareness training events um, that uh, my friends are apparently into uh, do actually um, probably target people who are a little more suggestible. Um, so anyway, I thought that was really interesting. I'm not interested in hypnotizing people um wink, wink. but i i do think it's really interesting that it's not just like a fake thing that magicians do on stage it's actually this whole um this whole paper is sort of about what you might what you might use from what we understand about the neuroscience of hypnosis to understand the way that you know cognitive neuroscience works which you know i'm definitely not uh expert enough to comment on given that i'm a nuclear engineer <laughs> well, I mean, we, we end up talking about a lot of psychological things on here, just 
somehow it naturally falls out of science. I guess, you know, they don't call them institutions for nothing, as some uh. Mr. Workforce says. Uh, but we, you know, we talked about, I had a programming instructor uh, recently recommend that book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, talking about uh, biases in our own life. And we learn a lot from these. Uh, but I really liked in here, figure two was talking about the Stroop effect, which I didn't know this had this name, uh, but where there would be words, like the word red, but it's colored green. And you're supposed to say the color that it is, not what it says. And it'll drive you mad. But apparently under hypnosis, you can be told to ignore the words and perform slightly better, at least for people that are suggestible. Yeah. Um, it, and it looks like, like quite a bit better. You know, there's a serious change in reaction time, like a 10%-ish change in reaction time, it looks like, from this paper. Yeah, I also found that alarming. The realism yeah. of hypnosis, that it's a real thing that you could like use to <laughs> perform differently. Uh, fascinating. <laughs> I signed up for one of these experiments uh, as a grad student for 20 bucks and free pizza, you know, and this was one of the things I had to do. So when I read that, I was like, man, that's crazy. Like, it is really hard to do. I'm like, oh, I got this. I'm smart. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> And then once in high school, so the part that I thought was interesting, the talking about the trance and then the suggestible Mm -hmm. part um, was because in high school, we had a hypnosis guy come in, you know, during our senior lock-in. And one guy got into a trance, but he wouldn't do anything. And so, like, the guy just did the show. And this poor dude was sitting off to the side in this weird (laughs) trance, like, for, like, an hour. And then he went over there and, like, had to do this one-on-one stuff with him to pull him out of it. It was really – that was the most interesting part to me. But (laughs) Yeah, apparently there's an individual scale. So apparently there are two different scales for suggestibility. And individual humans fall differently on the scale. And – it could be genetic. You know, there are a lot, like there's a, one of these classic twin studies was performed to determine whether or not it was genetic. I'm actually a twin, so twin studies get me every time. But like, uh. the, <laughs> I, how fascinating, right? That like, you could be genetically or just individually more susceptible to this kind of suggestion. And you might be that guy in the corner in the trance. Exactly. Just hanging out while everyone else is doing stuff. Uh, yeah, it was really weird. And this is awful for me because I'm like, the most suggestible person on earth so <laughs> this was terrifying like you can get me to do anything under hypnosis obviously i'm like coffee sure i'll do coffee oh yeah you know <laughs> so well and then there's another in figure three they actually they had they touched people with uh, a hot probe so 48 and a half degrees celsius i thought that was oddly specific it must be yes. some standard <laughs> threshold um <laughs> And, you know, had them rate their pain. And then they would hypnotically induce pain while touching them with something that was completely comfortable at 37C. And in a functional MRI, similar areas of the brain lit up, which is pretty fascinating that your mind can trick you that much. Make you think that. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. Yeah. So I found myself reading that the other day. This is another argument for... um, really open science also is that the only reason I was able to, you know, satisfy my completely non-academic curiosity about other humans was that I was able to access this through the UC Berkeley library proxy, right? If I were just an ordinary citizen, this probably government NIH funded research wouldn't have been at my fingertips to go satisfy my understanding of suggestibility and other humans. It's a shame. Yeah, this exactly. particular paper is behind a paywall, which I know for some of our listeners, they, they can't get to. Uh, 
which I, I thought that most nature things uh, were open, but they mm -hmm. actually have a journal Nature Communications now yeah. that everything's open access. But unfortunately, this is not in that journal. Yeah. Uh, well, I think this was a really fascinating paper, and it definitely stays with the spirit of Fun Paper Friday, of reading something <laughs> completely outside of our expertise and trying to learn something new. <laughs> Excellent. So, well, where would you like people to, to find you on the internet if they want to learn a little bit more about what you do or look at some of the resources or maybe buy your book? Um, so they can buy the book at physics.codes. So instead of like physics.codes.com, it's just physics.codes. Um, and you can also buy it directly from O'Reilly or Amazon by Googling effective computation in physics. Um, my personal website is Katie Huff. Dot github.io uh, and I'm pretty Googleable. So if you spell my name correctly with a Y, it's K A T Y H U F F, um, it should be the first hit. Well, fantastic. And if you have suggestions that you would like to send into the show, anything from Fun Paper Friday to things that we've messed up on, because I'm sure that there are some things in our <laughs> recent episodes, Never. or if you still have, we, we got an S's for Sinform. Uh, feedback on our last Geology ABC show. Uh, so if you have anything that you'd like to contribute to uh, the Geology Alphabet Aerobics, how can they get a hold of us, Shannon? You can send those suggestions in to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, as always, you can find us on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.